Welcome back to Create Space, a podcast that finds joy in the art of storytelling. This summer, I am planning to read a short series of books relating to creativity and storytelling and things of that nature. And then we're going to take some time and do a book discussion episode about each book that I read. Now, before we get into the book that I've chosen for this episode, I want to introduce a new segment to you. I've decided that each week we are going to do a review of the week. On Apple Podcasts, you can choose to both rate and review podcasts that you like. So if you search Create Space and you find the show and scroll down, you have the option to rate out of just a typical five-star rating. And then you can also leave a review if you'd like, or you can do one or the other. And so we have a few reviews on there right now, and I'm hopeful that that we'll continue getting more. So each week I will read one out loud at the beginning of the episode, and um, we'll just do that to kind of highlight what people are saying about Create Space, what people are enjoying about it. So if you have not left a review yet and you would like to, please hop on there and do that. Again, the only one that I know of where you can leave a review is Apple Podcasts. You can rate on Spotify, but it doesn't allow you to leave a review as far as I know. And for our first inaugural review of the week, we are going to read one from... Brittany 462. So Brittany 462 says, what a gem. We all have a story to tell and an opportunity to inspire those who listen. Thank you so much, Brittany. Very well said. And I appreciate you taking the time to rate and review the show. All right. So let's get into the book. The first book we're going to talk about is called Creative Confidence. This book was actually co-written, so it was written by two brothers, Tom and David Kelly. Now, Tom is the author of another book called The Art of Innovation, and David is the founder of the design company called IDEO and also the Stanford Design School. Now, David and Tom, like I said, they're brothers, so of course they grew up together, they've worked together in a lot of capacities throughout their lives, and they've always just had a really close relationship. Now, both of these men are really revolutionary creative thinkers in their own right. But to me, what I think is so special about this particular book is that they wrote it together and it came out of, or it was built from, a very human situation. So in 2007, David faced a cancer diagnosis that, as you would guess, completely changed his life. And it also dramatically changed Tom's life. Again, they were very close brothers. They went through this journey really together, and Tom was right there by David every single step of the way. He went to appointments with David, he took care of David, and really, like I said, they went through this together. So while they were going through this challenging time in their lives, they had made a pact that when David got better, they were going to do two things. And sure enough, after you know a long journey, David went into remission, and the two brothers made good on their pact. So the first thing that they had said they were going to do was to take a brother's trip together. So they were going to go somewhere. And the second thing they wanted to do was work side by side on a project that would allow them to share their ideas with each other and also with the world. Now, like I said, their careers have been very parallel, so they have worked together in a lot of different ways, but they wanted to do something that was really equal parts, both of them, and was something where they didn't just work parallel, but they actually integrated together and worked together, right, side by side on this project. And as you've probably guessed by now, that collaborative project that was born out of that journey is this book, Creative Confidence. Now, the philosophy behind Creative Confidence is that creativity is not a fixed trait. 
It's not something that you either have or you don't have. Instead, they would suggest that we all have an innate capacity within us to be creative. And in fact, there's a really interesting anecdote in the book. And they quote Dr. Thupten Jinpa, who has been the chief English translator for the Dalai Lama since 1985. And Dr. Jinpa says that there's no actual word in the Tibetan language that translates to creativity. So the closest translation they can find is a Tibetan word that means natural. What I take that to mean is that creativity is not this different way of being. It's not something that some people have and some people don't. But creativity or being creative is actually coming back to the natural state in which we were all meant to live. So things like using your imagination and participating in childlike play is a natural part of human thinking and human behavior. And then as a follow up to that idea, here's a direct quote from the book. They say, but the real value of creativity doesn't emerge until you are brave enough to act on those ideas. That combination of thought and action defines creative confidence, the ability to come up with new ideas and the courage to try them out. Tom and David say that when you're trying to come up with a new idea or solve a problem, there are three factors that you need to consider. The feasibility, the viability, and the desirability. Basically, can it be done? Technically speaking, that's your feasibility. Can it be scaled in an economic way? That's your viability. And then finally, do people want it? right? So desirability, does it appeal to humans? And Tom and David would argue that we've got the first two pretty locked down. There are plenty of engineering schools and business schools that are successfully uh, and effectively training people to understand and work towards feasibility and viability. But the desirability piece or the human factors part of that equation is often left out. So David and Tom use this approach that is really rooted in empathy, And it involves a lot of observation. So they observe real humans living real human lives. And they use a technique to approach their work called design thinking. Now, design thinking wasn't invented by the Kelly brothers, but it is used extensively at both IDEO and also at the Stanford D School. Their version of design thinking involves four phases. Those four phases are inspiration, synthesis, experimentation, and implementation. And every single one of those steps is steeped in observing the human element of the problem that you're trying to solve. It relies on the ability to be intuitive, to start to see and recognize patterns that come up, and to come up with ideas that are not only functional, but that are also emotionally meaningful. So in order to be able to cultivate creative confidence and to successfully implement design thinking, you need to believe that you can make a change, that you can solve a problem. And it's been well researched that you're more likely to succeed if you believe it's possible, right? If you think it, you can be it. This concept is called self-efficacy, which is simply the thought that you can make a difference. It's the idea that, that you're not walking around thinking, well, what I do doesn't matter, or I can't make a difference anyways, so why try? But the idea that you do feel like you have something of value to offer and that you can change the world around you. Now, what's the best way to get self-efficacy? Succeed. If you see success in your life, then you are going to obviously believe that you can be successful in the future. But you can't succeed without trying something new. 
And we often don't try new things because we don't think we can make a difference. So as you can see, there's this very self-sabotaging cycle that occurs. Now, Tom and David turn to the work of Stanford researcher Albert Bandura, who came up with something called Guided Mastery. And you may have heard of him before because his Guided Mastery program is, is uh, very well-renowned. The most popular story, I suppose, of Albert Bandura's Guided Mastery is one in which he is teaching somebody how to get close to a snake. And that person has an extreme phobia of snakes. So the principle of Guided Mastery is to create small successes in an intentional way in order to take baby steps towards a larger goal. Bandura tells the person, hey, you're going to walk into this room and you're going to touch this snake. And the person, of course, says, no way. Absolutely. I'm not going to do that. And that makes sense, right? But then Bandura breaks it down into small steps and says, okay, so the first thing that you're going to do is simply look at this snake in the room through a window. And that first step is very difficult for the person. They don't even like doing that, right? It's very difficult. But then they do it and they feel success from that. So that is the first small success. And then perhaps they um, approach the door, right? And they don't even open the door, but they stand by the door. And then the third step maybe is they put their hand on the doorknob. And very, very slowly and very, very gradually, with every single small success, the person gets braver and braver and braver. And eventually the person walks into the room and touches the snake. And by then, they're not afraid anymore because they've seen that they can do it. They have the self-efficacy. So guided mastery draws on the power of firsthand experience to remove false beliefs. And if you think about it, firsthand experience is irrefutable, right? You're not going to care if someone says, no, you can't do that. Because if you have done it, if you have firsthand experience, you're not going to believe that person. You're going to say, okay, well, thanks for your opinion, I guess. But I know I can do it because I've literally done it. So firsthand experience is something that will always work, right? So if you can get that firsthand experience in small ways, small intentional ways, that will help you work towards your goal. The biggest fear, and we've talked about this in Create Space before, the biggest fear that blocks creativity is the fear of failure or the fear of judgment. That's, that's why we all tend to be so imaginative and playful when we're children, because we don't have a lot of fear of judgment at that point in time. We don't care, right? We haven't been conditioned to feel like we need to meet some set of expectations. But then as we grow up, we start to wall off these sides of ourselves for, again, the fear of being judged or the fear of failing or the fear of having something not work out like it's supposed to. But design thinking tells us that failure is, in fact, the only way to succeed. You know, there's this myth that geniuses, you know, creative geniuses, that they fail less than the average person does. But really, they probably fail more than the average person does. The thing is, they just try more, right? People who are creative, people who are geniuses, people who have done amazing things, try more. They try all the time. So they still fail a ton, uh, again, probably more than you or me, but they also succeed a lot. So if you think about some of the famous inventors that we know of, right, the Wright brothers, Thomas Edison, there are so many examples of people who literally failed 99% of the time, but they learned from it every single time and they ended up inventing something amazing. And of course, what we remember these people for is their invention. We don't remember them for the many times that they got it wrong. They used every single one of those as a step 
towards their inevitable success. So what they do at the Stanford D School is they use guided mastery to give groups of students small tasks. And those small tasks progressively become more intense and more difficult so that they can slowly, very slowly, try to transcend that fear of failure. What ends up happening is the students get used to failure as just another part of the process. And in fact, they say, you know, the quicker that you fail, the quicker you find the weakness in the system and the quicker you can fix it. So it's almost a confidence builder to fail fast. And the other part of this is accepting failure as failure. You can't learn from a mistake unless you embrace it as a mistake. What I mean here is that a lot of us fall into kind of one of two buckets. Either you fall into the category of, I failed, therefore I'm a terrible person and I should never try again because I can't do it. Or we rationalize it and kind of deny the failure as not being ours or not being our problem or not being our fault. Right. And that's really to avoid the discomfort of feeling like we didn't do something appropriately. And either way, we're not embracing the fail, whether we are embodying the fail and saying, that's it, I'm a failure, or whether we're saying, yes, it didn't work, but it's not my fault that it didn't work. In either of those situations, we're not embracing the fail and we're not using it to its full potential, which is to grow us to the next step. There's an author and educator that they mention in the book named Tina Selig, and she does this really interesting practice with her students each semester where she asks them to write a failure resume. So it's literally a resume, but instead of highlighting the best of what they've done, it highlights their biggest screw ups. And I think that's kind of brilliant. Uh, what they do is they write down you know, the biggest times that they failed, just massive screw ups. And then they say what they learned from it or how they grew from it or how things have changed because of that failure. And I just think that's amazing. My first thought was, I'm definitely going to incorporate this into my own classes. And then my second thought was, before I do that, before I you know, give that to students as an assignment, I need to try to write one myself because it sounds like a cool project, but I also have this feeling that it's probably a really difficult and painful thing to do to write one about yourself. I don't know. The jury's out on that one, but I think I would need to to write one myself and kind of have that empathy before asking somebody else to do it. Now, another powerful practice that they mentioned was to ask people who say, I'm not creative. Ask them, when did you decide that you weren't creative? And they said that usually what it comes back to is either a failure or a time when they did something that maybe they thought was good, but it wasn't accepted for some reason or another. So like a friend said their drawing wasn't good when they were nine or a teacher gave them a C on a creative writing assignment in high school. And so they decided I'm not a good writer. And either way, at some point in their life, there was an experience or a failure, as it were, that planted the seed of I'm just not a creative person. So then have that person who says they're not creative. Imagine how their life might be different if they had looked at that moment in time, not as the end of their, their creativity, but just as a small bit of information, right? A data point that might help them to foster their creativity in a new and different way. If we started to look at every single rejection as just that, a piece of information, a new discovery, then we could really learn to welcome these interactions instead of fearing them and being so afraid of them. So now get ready because I'm about to make a tie in here that blew my mind and made me so 
happy <laughs> when I read it. So when I started reading this book, I did notice, of course, that it was called Creative Confidence. And as you recall, several weeks ago, I can't remember how many weeks ago, uh, but I did a two episode series that I titled Creative Courage. So when I noticed that similarity of picking up this book and saying, oh, this is called Creative Confidence. And, you know, the podcast I did was called Creative Courage. To be very honest with you, my first thought was, I hope that's not close enough that I could get dinged for copyright infringement, which uh, eventually, you know, I decided, okay, I think it's it's probably okay. And neither of the Kelly brothers have come after me yet. So, okay. But if you remember, if you have listened to my Creative Courage series, it was all based around shame and how shame keeps us from stepping into our full creative potential, right? We talked a lot in that two-part series about the work of shame researcher Brene Brown. So get this, okay? So I'm reading Creative Confidence, and right here, it's on page 57, David and Tom Kelly cite the woman herself, Brene Brown. I was so excited. So here's the passage. This is what they say in the book, Creative Confidence. In her research on insecurity, Brene Brown talked with a thousand people to identify what makes them feel inadequate and to understand the downward spirals of feeling not good enough. As Brown writes, when our self-worth isn't on the line, we're far more willing to be courageous and risk sharing our raw talents and gifts. One way to embrace creativity, Brown says, is to let go of comparison. If you're concerned about conforming or about how you measure up to others' successes, you won't perform the risk-taking and trailblazing that is inherent in all creative endeavors. And I love that. I love when things that I've learned about in the past come up in new ways or in, in unexpected ways. It's it's satisfying to see the pieces come together. So it reminds me of like when I was in grad school and I'd be writing a literature review. And eventually when you're doing research, you get to that point that you're looking at the bibliography of a particular article that you're citing, and that bibliography is citing other articles that you've already read. And it's this really validating moment because you realize, hey, I'm heading in the right direction. Like these pieces of information are coming together, and you're realizing that everything you're learning is starting to weave together in this kind of tapestry of information. And that's how I felt when these two guys, who I respect so much, cited Brene Brown, who, of course, as I've mentioned, has been such a formative part of my own concept of creative courage, creative confidence, all of those sorts of things, right? All right, moving on. So a part of developing creative confidence is releasing the thought that everything has a right and a wrong answer, that inherently one thing is always going to be better than another and that we have to be constantly comparing, right? So comparing ourselves to other people, comparing our work to work that's been done before, comparing our lives to the lives of others. And there's something profoundly freeing about realizing that two distinctly different outcomes, sometimes even polar opposite outcomes, can coexist without any sort of hierarchy. It doesn't have to be this or that. It doesn't have to be this one is a little bit better than that one, but it can be this and that. To me, life becomes really beautiful when you start to look at it that way. And looking at life this way builds resilience. And resilience builds, you guessed it, creative confidence. The cool thing about creative confidence is that it starts to snowball once you really start to work on it. Now, initially, when you begin with the baby steps of using guided mastery to start to put yourself out there and try new things, there's going to be a lot of fear. So 
much fear. And in the book, they compare it to when a child is trying to gear themselves up to go down the slide for the very first time. They're terrified, right? As they take every single step up the ladder, they get more and more frightened. But then finally, they do it. They take that first plunge. And almost instantly, the fear turns to ecstatic joy. And the same thing can happen when you tackle a creative pursuit. Maybe you're scared to oh, I don't know, let's say start a podcast, right? Maybe you're scared to start a podcast about storytelling. I will tell you that every single step towards launching Create Space was so scary for me. Every single one. Coming up with a title, creating cover art, um, getting my headshots taken, recording the trailer, and then finally launching that trailer and officially announcing that I was going to do this thing. And I launched the trailer about two months before I started the actual podcast. So I got the first surge of joy when I launched the trailer because it was the first time that I had committed to and said out loud, like, I'm doing this. I did much of the behind the scenes work really without telling anybody. I didn't really talk about it, um, you know, with friends and colleagues and stuff. I just sort of did it. And I think the reason I did it that way is because the moment I started talking to someone about it, I felt like I was committed to it. Uh, whereas I was really kind of waffling back and forth on whether or not I was going to do it. So when I launched that trailer, it was like, all right, it's out in the world. This is it. And that first surge of joy, that the first moment where the fear started to tip in the direction of joy happened when I released the trailer. And I got great feedback and people were excited about it. And of course, that helped a lot as well. And then January 1st, 2022, I launched the first episode. And from that point on, my goodness, all of that fear not all of it. I still get nervous when I do interviews. I still get nervous sometimes when I put a new episode out, but I wouldn't call it fear. I would call it more enthusiastic nerves as opposed to like true fear and anxiety because now I know what the outcome is, right? That's the best part of the creative process. Once you've experienced the joy, it keeps you coming back for more. And as soon as you feel that first bit of joy, that first success, every subsequent step after that becomes a little bit easier and a little bit more fun and a lot less scary. There are two great quotes that explain this so perfectly, and they're both quoted in the book. The first is Ralph Waldo Emerson said, do the thing you fear and the death of fear is certain. And then a Hungarian essayist, his name is Georgi Conrad said, courage is only the accumulation of small steps. So we know that to cultivate creative confidence, we have to trust and follow and act upon that creative spark when we feel it. We have to notice it and not be afraid of it, but instead we have to allow it to take us where it will. But how can we ensure we're noticing these sparks in our lives? How can we ensure that the sparks continue coming? Because sometimes we do hit creative blocks where we're thinking, I would love to act on a feeling of creativity, but I don't even have that, right? So Tom and David say that you need to intentionally choose creativity. When you've made this decision and you're actively paying attention to and observing what's around you, that spark will start to come more and more often. They, they say to engage in something called relaxed attention. So you're focused and you're observing, but not on anything in particular. You're just taking in as much information as you can and you're living your life with a sense of curiosity and a willingness to just discover what's there, discover what is possible and what is existing around you all the time. And as you start observing and learning, you wanna start all of your questions with why. Get away from the obvious what 
and dig deeper to find out why things are the way that they are. And keep in mind that, again, there isn't always a right or wrong answer here. Sometimes there are 10 answers that can all coexist and there is no hierarchy. So it's just asking that question and seeing what comes up. What answers do you get when you think about why? By embracing natural curiosity and fostering that in others, you're going to start to create what Tom and David call an epiphany-friendly environment. And then when those epiphanies hit, you trust them and you explore them, which in turn allows the environment to become even more conducive to creative serendipity in the future. Now, let's get into something that they call the do something mindset. This book says that we should strive to live in active voice. So we need not be passive observers in our own lives. And they suggest that by practicing this do something mindset, you notice small things in your world that would be better if they were just a little bit different. And then you change those things. So very, very small things, right? Let's say uh, you always sit in the same place in the classroom and you notice that sometimes the sun glares on the projector and it makes it so that at certain times of the day you can't see the screen. Now, instead of being annoyed by that or thinking of that as just a, eh, yeah, sometimes that happens, just sit somewhere else next time you come in, right? A tiny little thing that's not going to affect you know, your life really in any giant way, but it was a small choice that you made. You observed something you got curious about something and you thought, you know what, if I move three feet to my left, I'll probably be able to see the projector the whole time. Maybe let's try that. So there are these little things that you are in full control of, but maybe you've just kind of put up with because you either didn't notice or you didn't think to act on it for one reason or the other. So starting the habit of asking why and then trying something new is a great way to practice. So then when a big action is needed, you're ready. And in the book, they say it's hard to be best right away. So commit to rapid and continuous improvements. And again, that's going back really to the guided mastery, right? Getting small successes quickly and consistently so that you're ready when the big action is is needed. Now, there was a story in another book called Art and Fear where a ceramics instructor divided her class into uh, half, right? So half the class was told that their grade was going to be based on quality as shown in one single piece of pottery that they would turn in at the end of the semester. So they had they had the entire semester to work on this one single piece of pottery and then they would turn it in and based on that quality they would get their grade. The other half was told that their grade was based on quantity. So the more pots they could throw, the better, regardless of what that quality was. It was like if they ended up with, you know, 50 pieces of pottery, then they would get an A. So what happened is the students who focused on perfecting the one single piece did not end up with as much progress as those who just made stuff one after the other, right? So again, rapid and continuous improvement. They found that Although one half spent an entire semester perfecting and analyzing and just making this one pot as perfect as they could, some of the pots that had been made quickly were better, especially the ones that had been made quickly towards the end of the semester, because the students progressed more by continuing to create over and over and over again. So by the end, they were really good, whereas the first half had not created enough to get those rapid and continuous successes under their belt. So we want to reduce our sense of perfectionism and reduce that feeling that everything has to be just exactly right before we can create. So, you know, in the words of the classic famous Nike campaign, just 
do it. As hard as it is, we need to be intentional about pushing away this desire to procrastinate until we get into a flow, but to just make things every single day. And I heard a story once and it was interesting. My husband actually told me this story because we were talking about creativity and how, you know, I feel like I have to be in the flow to get certain things done. So if I'm trying to write a lecture, I'm trying to edit a video or come up with an idea for a podcast episode. I find myself saying, oh, I can't do that right now because I'm not in the right headspace, right? I'm not in the right creative flow. And he told me this story that he had heard somewhere about Ed Sheeran, who is a singer-songwriter, right? And I love Ed Sheeran. And he said that Ed said in an interview that he had decided to look at songwriting as just a typical regular day job. And so the way that he did that was he committed to writing a new complete song every single day for a year. So even when he didn't feel creative, even when the spark wasn't there, he still wrote a song. And then at the end of that year, he had a lot of bad songs, a lot of terrible songs, but he also had a few great songs. And more than that, he had built this habit of practicing his craft every single day. And he had really whittled away at this sense of perfectionism that every song that he made needed to be perfect. Something that I think prevents us from leaping into action is the feeling that if we prototype out an idea or we put effort into working on an idea or as Ed Sheeran did, if we write a song and then maybe that song or that idea isn't what we end up using, we feel like we've wasted that effort and we've wasted that time. But if we can reframe that thought pattern to one that acknowledges that every single experiment yields growth and yields learning, then that time doesn't feel wasted any longer. And we don't feel the need to necessarily think through every single detail before we try something. If we can start to embrace the idea that the action is the outcome, things start to push away from that sense of perfectionism. And I find this really interesting, and I'm trying to kind of brainstorm how to add this concept into my teaching. And I haven't come up with exactly what this could look like, but as I was reading the book, it feels like there's a really great in-class exercise in there somewhere, right? Something that embraces experimentation even when, and, and especially when, it ends in failure. A lot of things in a classroom setting, a lot of things in academia, end up with a letter grade. And so, of course, that pushes towards perfectionism because you want to get the A. And I was thinking about that. And of course, I, you know, I have to give grades. That's kind of the point of a college class. But I think if there was a way that we could kind of get off of the focus on the grade and focus more on the experimentation, or perhaps the grade comes out of failure, right? The best failure gets an A. I don't know. I don't know what that looks like. But like I said, it just it got my brain moving a little bit um, and wondering how I how I can incorporate that to make my classrooms feel a little bit more conducive to creativity. Now, something actionable that the book suggests in order to make sure that you're facilitating ultimate creative flow in your own life is to complete something that they call a rate my day practice. This isn't a completely new idea. A lot of people have said things like this, but but this has a different spin on it. So for a specified amount of time, journal about or write down everything that you can remember about your days. And then at the end of that day, you rate your day and you say from one to 10, how was that day for me? So then after, you know, a week or two or however long you decide to do this practice, you can ask yourself, when was I at my best? Am I more creatively at my best when I take a walk each morning? Am I more creatively at my best when I go to the local coffee shop where I can also talk with a couple of friends and get kind of a free flow of ideas? What types of things make you at your best? And you can use those observations from the Rate My Day practice to intentionally add in more of what develops deep passion and feelings of creativity for you. 
because of course that's going to be different. And of course, you can also start to eliminate the things that block you, the things that make you feel, you know, steeped in judgment and feeling like you're not good enough. You can start to eliminate those things. So if that means, you know, experimenting with more side projects, do that. If it means taking more walks, do that. If it means exploring a new interest or a new hobby, do that. Treat your life in that same manner of active experimentation that we've talked about earlier, right? Your life can be a project just like your next video editing project can be. You don't have to be discouraged if you try something and you don't like it. That's just one more thing that you've learned about yourself. It's one more data point. And just because you try something doesn't mean you have to stick to it. If you try something and you, you go, that doesn't feel good, no problem, just stop. So in the last section of the book, they discuss how creating a culture of creative confidence is so important. They kind of focus on it from an organizational or a departmental level. But to me, it was very applicable to a lot of different scenarios, especially for my classes. I, you know, I'm not an organization or department necessarily, but in an academic setting, there's a lot of similarities. I mean, it's all group work, right? So they asked a really powerful question that I thought was interesting. And it made me think about how I design my classes. And the question was, how do you make it safe to participate and engage in creative action. So I definitely work to build empathy and relatability into my classes, and mostly I think it works. It's something that I've prided myself on and I've had good feedback from students saying that they find it easier than they expected to, to ask me questions, um, take risks, try new things, you know, et cetera, et cetera. However, I had a situation uh, just this past semester where I used a creative group activity um, and it was an in-class exercise and I used it in my advanced editing course and I was really excited about it. I thought it was gonna be really fun and it didn't work quite as well as I had expected it to. So what I did was I had the students form small groups and they all chose a trending TikTok transition, right? So something where first you're not ready and then you do a cool transition uh, to the beat of music and then you have a full face of makeup on or, or a different outfit or whatever. Um, lots of different transitions are trending on TikTok at any given time. And so I thought that might be fun to have the students get into small groups and they chose a transition and then they spent the class period rebuilding it together. So they kind of watched it, sort of researched how it was done and figured out how they could do it. And afterwards, the activity was successful in the sense of the videos looked pretty good. You know, the students agreed that they did learn something. But as I was watching them work together, I felt like the groups seemed a little bit forced and they seemed a little bit uncomfortable. So I asked a student after class um, who, you know, I kind of have a rapport with and um, they tend to, you know, be able to be honest with me. And I was like, hey, what did you think about that? Like, I, you know, and I told them, I said, I don't feel like this was as free flowing as I'd hoped it would be. And the student agreed. And they said, yeah, I think it's because, you know, we didn't know each other really all that well. Like we hadn't really done any group work in this class before, which after they said that to me, it occurred to me that I had worked really hard to make myself relatable and approachable as the instructor of the course, but I hadn't really focused on creating an environment within the classroom that would be conducive to sharing ideas with one another and with working together. They were all comfortable with me, but they weren't necessarily comfortable with each other. So that was kind of revealing to me. And as I read the last couple of chapters of this book, they had some really excellent ideas for increasing creative confidence specifically in a group setting. And most of those ideas I think could be applied directly to the classes that I teach. So one thing that they mentioned was being intentional about the space. And they said, direct quote here, that creative people flourish in creative environments. Now, I, I will say there's one thing really only one thing that I didn't love about this book. And that is that you could tell 
that these guys worked at Stanford and most of what they do they have a lot of resources at their disposal. So so a perfect example of that is they were talking about, you know, this creative environment and creating the space where people can really come up with their most, you know, their best ideas. So they mentioned that in this one story, a couple of d-school students were trying to come up with a collectible item for a brand that was from like the classic rock world so what they did was they bought a vintage airstream trailer and they parked it on campus and they used this vintage trailer as their project space so they they went into this project space um, in this trailer a couple times a week for the semester however long they were working on it and it allowed them to you know quote unquote immerse themselves in the ethos of that era So to me, if I'm being honest, that feels excessive. I mean, yeah, I guess if you've got the money, you know, why not? But it didn't really feel at all relatable to something that I could do in my life. And I will say that that there were more than a few situations throughout that book where I did feel that kind of sense of privilege, I guess, for lack of a better word. I don't know. It just it felt a little bit out of touch in that regard. So I did want to mention that. But while I'm not going to go out and buy an Airstream trailer and park it on campus, I do think I was able to kind of look past those sort of extravagant examples and think about smaller ways or more doable ways that I could make my classroom feel more creative. And it actually made me think of one of my colleagues, Dr. Lisa Parcell, who's amazing. And I absolutely, like every day, I think if I can be a teacher more like Lisa, I will have done great for today. And something that she's done, and she has done for, for many years, as far as I can remember, is she brings things to class for students. So typically that's a small bowl of candy, just some little pieces of candy that people can snack on if they want. Uh, she brings a little bowl of fidget toys. So, you know, there might be a fidget spinner or... Um, one of those popper, I can't remember what they're called, but the popper toys, you know, or things like that. Just little fidgets that students can mess around with as they're brainstorming. And then she also brings a pot of coffee uh, to all of her evening graduate classes. So something small like that allows the environment to just feel a little bit more comfortable, right? All of a sudden, it's not just a student sitting in a classroom listening to a teacher talk, but they're enjoying coffee and snacks together and as they're, you know, trying to share in a small group and maybe they're a little bit nervous about doing so, they have a fidget toy that they can play with. And it just lets them feel more comfortable and helps them lean into whatever project it is that you're work that you're wanting them to work on. And I'd never thought about that. You know, I knew that Lisa did this in her class, and for some reason it never translated to, oh, that's why she's doing that. That's why that's helpful. I should do something like that in my class. So that's something that I took away from this book that I definitely plan to put into action is just trying to come up with small ways to create an environment where creative group work with their peers comes more naturally and flows a little bit more naturally. The other thing is starting small with creative group challenges. So as I look back on the TikTok transition editing challenge that I told you about, I think my biggest problem there was not that it wasn't a good project. I think it was, but I hadn't built them up to it yet, right? Again, they hadn't built a rapport with one another yet. If I'd started earlier in the semester giving them very small, very doable activities that would have, again, used the concept of guided mastery to help them feel small, immediate, and consistent success, but also to get to know one another, 
then I think they would have been a lot more prepared to take on that bigger challenge later. And I think everyone would have had a lot more fun with it as well. I will say that chapter seven of Creative Confidence is full of simple and actionable creative challenges. So if you are a teacher or a manager or anybody who's in charge of trying to get a group of people to be creative together, get this book and just read chapter seven. I mean, I would recommend you read the whole thing, but at least read chapter seven. It had, I can't remember how many, but I want to say between 10 and 15 different creative challenges. And I've already picked out probably three or four that I kind of like, and I have found ways that I could incorporate them into my classes. So I'm going to try them out this fall and I will follow back up with you guys and kind of let you know how it went. But that idea of just trying things out is probably the biggest takeaway that I had from this book. They suggest to treat your job and your education and your hobbies and your life as a whole as an experiment. And we talked about this a little bit before. When you think about trying new things, it can feel scary. But if you can frame it in your mind as, I'm just going to try this, right? It's a prototype. It's an experiment. If it doesn't work, no big deal then we've learned something, then you're not going to be as attached to the outcome. Because we all know that a lot of times experiments and prototypes don't work. And there's no judgment there when they don't work. You just learn from it and you move on and you try something else. And I love that mentality. And I find myself getting really excited about the possibilities of things that I could experiment with, right? Just simple, small things. So overall, to kind of close up this episode, I would definitely recommend this book. Um, It was a pretty easy read. I I read it, I think, in about a week or so. And it's full of very specific examples and stories that bring the concepts to life. So as I've been talking about it, I walked you through a lot of the concepts. uh, Nowhere near all of them, by the way. But I walked you through some of them and told a couple of the short stories. But there are a lot more very specific anecdotes about students at the D school, about uh, clients of IDEO, about things that David and Tom have experienced themselves. And they really do help to make it an easy read. And also, again, to bring those concepts to life. And yes, there were some parts that seemed a little bit out of touch, uh, but the message did definitely still come through despite that. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed this format. I'm excited to kind of continue reading and learning and growing with all of you this summer. And uh, if you end up reading Creative Confidence by David and Tom Kelly, let me know. I would love to hear your guys' thoughts. As the summer progresses, I'm also looking at a couple of books by Yuval Noah Harari. So I quoted him in the very first episode of Create Space, and I have since bought three of his books. So we'll be looking at those uh, this summer, as well as a book from The Moth called How to Tell a Story. And uh, I'm very excited about that one as well. So I hope you all have a great day and I will see you next week on Create Space. And please don't forget about the review of the week. Hop on Apple Podcasts, rate and review, and I might read your review in a future episode. See y'all later. Bye.